Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Morgan Hayes. Good afternoon, Dr. Hayes. Good afternoon. How are things going for you uh, this actually sunny day, it looks like? We've got some sunshine in there. Uh, no complaints here. We're a little bit drier this week, and it makes it a little easier to farm and a little easier to make farm visits as well. That That is for sure. Um, give it a... Uh, what we got a day uh, tomorrow i think there's an 80 90 chance of rain here coming in so uh, it they always say if you don't like the weather in kentucky today just wait it'll change i think that's true <laughs> so dr hayes tell us a little bit about yourself you were a um, an, an agricultural engineer and um, just give us a little bit of background about yourself sure i'm a, i am an agricultural engineer i have three degrees from three different universities, and they all have different titles, but they all involve agricultural engineering. Um, I did uh, my master's uh, at Kentucky, and then I actually went to Iowa State for a couple years. Uh, And then I worked for USDA out in Nebraska for a few years uh, with uh, cattle and with uh, swine there. And then I actually went to Illinois for a few years uh, in an extension role before I came back to Kentucky in my current role. Uh, And I work primarily with livestock facilities, uh, which confinement farms obviously make sense, um, but all types of facilities and ventilation and resource usage sort of related to having animals in barns. And and I was trying to remember, uh, Dr. Hayes, so uh, you, when you were at USDA or working with USDA, were you involved in some of the shade work that was uh, going on out there at that time? Yes, I was. Uh, We did a lot of uh, heat stress work when I was out there. We actually ran three heat stress studies one summer. Felt like I was taking respiration rates on cattle, like in my sleep almost. I was (laughs) taking so many respiration rates on them. Uh, But it was great research to do. It was really fun. And and certainly something that was needed. Uh, We, you know, we we really don't have a lot of data on uh, kind of the utilization of shades and and feedlot situations and a lot of it's done in Australia and, and that, but uh, we haven't seen a whole lot here just yet. Yeah, and, and with feedlots, it's it's a hot environment, and they keep having longer and hotter um, summer like heat waves, um, which is you know really difficult for the cattle out there. So. Yeah, we you know we don't think about it, but that as they get close to finishing that that fat that is uh laying across that uh ribeye area and underneath the hide is a great insulator and can lead to heat stress absolutely so i've i wanted to have you on a little bit we we seem to continue to get increased interest and in, and in questions about confinement barns here a lot that has to do with we are in a relatively high precipitation area and it can get relatively muddy if we try to manage cattle in, in confinement and just dirt lots. And so uh, in the past, there has been some cost sharing through NRCS on some winter feeding structures and that. And um, with the increase in the bourbon industry production and there's been more availability and uh, the feedstuffs coming out of the bourbon industry that folks are looking into more confinement, or at least that's what it seems to me. Um, and I'm sure you get a lot of those questions. I do. I get a lot of questions about how to feed cattle in the wintertime. So people are looking at barns, at least in my experience, they're looking at barns here in Kentucky, primarily for mud issues um, and also for ease of feeding. So the two in combination um, sort of lead to people looking at a barn Um and as you said, a, a dry lot is not really an option around here. I mean, we have the options to use some concrete, but it's hard to keep cattle on concrete for too long. Uh, it's challenging for the animals and for and for the person managing the animals around here. So uh, a lot of people look at the barns, but you know, the real key is you got to figure out how to use a barn a lot of the time to really pay for one. So 
there is a there's a dynamic there that I think a lot of people have to sort of wrestle with is they like cattle out on pasture, but they also want to be able to feed them and avoid mud in the winter time. And and that that utilization on a you know more than just three to four months of a year becomes a bit of a challenge. We're we're in a state that's predominantly cow calf, but we do have a a, a good sized backgrounding and soccer industry that um, is here, and and that may be certainly an option to utilize that facility more um, because we can put cattle in there in nearly any month that it would be available. But um, but that brings up a good point. We're we're making a significant investment in a structure that potentially, if only used in the wintertime, is maybe going to be a pretty costly overhead. 120, 150 days typically is our kind of hay feeding period. And uh, if you if you've got a, a facility that can increase our costs pretty pretty quickly. Yep. As we kind of think about then um, confinement facilities for beef cattle, um, there's probably more than one option that folks have. And maybe we could start out there as uh, thinking about um, perhaps first kind of the structure options that they have to work with and give us a little bit of maybe pros and cons of each of those. And um, then we can chit chat a little bit more about some other kind of management related things. Yeah, I think that's a good starting point. So there's three styles of barns that people would typically put up if they were putting up a new barn uh, for rearing cattle. Um, the first is a hoop barn. The second is a gable barn. And the third is a monoslope barn. Um, and a hoop barn looks very similar to the hoop barns most people have to store hay in, uh, or other commodities. Um, but the key is a barn like this that we're designing to rear animals. in. it's very important that we find one that actually ventilates well. That means it has to have a higher sidewall. It has to have engineered steel because it is a higher sidewall and it's more open. So it picks up a lot more wind. Um, and we also need a ridge vent, usually in the top, in the center of it, uh, just to take some of that moisture out of the barn uh, from those animals. Uh, and that moisture is coming typically from some respiration with the animals, but primarily from manure being in that barn. And we're trying to keep that floor dry enough to not tag those cattle. Um, the second style of barn is, is a gable. That's your traditional barn. It's got a triangle on the end wall and you see two roof lines on it. Similar to the hoop barn, we really want good tall sidewalls on barns like this to get airflow through them. And we definitely need a ridge vent in this style of barn as well. Um, other things that are really interesting is uh, gabled barns do extremely well if we get a little bit of a steeper pitch on our roof. Um, so sometimes it's a hard sell for folks because it's more metal on the roof. Um, but that extra little bit of pitch to that roof actually will draw the air out better. It acts like a chimney. A good tall chimney will draw a lot better than a short chimney or one on the back side of a, a roof line that doesn't receive wind. Uh, so if we can make it nice and tall, we can really pull some of that moist, stale air out of the top of the barn. Uh, and the third style is a monoslope barn. And, and the monoslopes have had tremendous popularity right now in the upper Midwest because they take advantage of the natural wind directions uh, in that region where they get a lot of southerly winds in the summer and northerly winds in the winter, and they can control drafts in the wintertime when it's cold, and they can allow a lot of airflow in the summertime when they need it for heat dissipation. Um, we have good southerly winds most of the time in a lot of areas, but a lot more variability in our winds. Um, the monoslope still has some advantages. It still moves air decently. Um, I typically don't recommend it to folks if they're not already sold on that style because cost-wise it tends to be a little bit higher. And I don't know that we gain as much ventilation advantage as they do in the upper Midwest, enough to justify the additional cost. Uh, but if people have a strategy or a market by which they're buying one and they're they're committed to that, I, I'm not opposed to them. I think they, they'd certainly move air well. Uh, the gabled barns generally are the easiest to get someone to put up in Kentucky. They're the most standard style of barns. You know, we have a lot of Mennonite crews that put up gabled barns. Um, I think it's usually a pretty useful structure um, and one that you can find both the material for uh, and the familiarity with a construction crew to put it up. Um, the hoop barns, 
I like. Uh, personally, I find them attractive. Um, that is not that everyone will agree with me on that <laughs> that point. I, I personally like that style of barn. I also like how much light comes into it. Um, I think it makes it easier, especially for feeder operations that have a lot of black cattle or similarly coated cattle, uh, coated cattle that you can easily see differences in the animals by having that extra light in the barn. Uh, so if you're dealing with disease and trying to identify things, it, I think there's some benefits to that. Um, the challenge is you have a hoop structure and the hoop doesn't have the same lifespan as a metal roof. And realistically, if you're buying a good hoop barn, you're looking at the same cost on that as you are often on a gabled barn. Um, and so for a lot of people, that similar cost with two different structures, they tend to lean towards a gabled barn because of the longevity of the structure. Sure, that makes good sense. Um, would we get or would we expect to see the same kind of natural ventilation between the gable barn and the, the hoop structure? We would get probably fairly similar ventilation rates with both structures. The key with both of these barns and all these barns is we're depending on wind to do our ventilation in the summertime, our maximum ventilation rates. So as long as we have the right opening on the sidewalls and similar widths on the barn that, that the wind's going across, we should do decently well with both styles of barns. They've done some really nice engineering with some of the hoops to try and get them to draw better. Uh, the hoop does have a lot of height to it, so it actually pulls air up extremely well. So they actually, uh, by some CFD models, look like they're slightly higher than a, a gabled barn, but I think both of them can be designed to get very reasonable winter ventilation and to receive wind if we site the barn correctly and orient it the way we need to. You, you brought up a good point there that um, uh, about width of the barns. And, and you and I both spent some time in the upper Midwest. And uh, one of our research facilities that we had, uh, it was our kind of our beef feedlot facility, was built around 1964, 66, something like that. And originally it, it was a gabled barn. Um, Side walls were probably about 12 feet at best. Um, but at some point in time, it was, I think it was 45 feet uh, on the width. And it had the, probably about every 10 feet, it had about a four foot by four foot uh, sliding kind of window that would open up to increase the airflow in the quote unquote summer. Um, but at some point in time, the, the barn got a lean-to put on the south side. And that added, I would venture to guess another 16 feet or so to those pins that were roofed. And every spring, um, as we kind of got into late February, early March, you could see the rain just come down on those cattle as we were getting into the time of the year when you started getting a little bit more moisture in the air coming in and it would kind of be cold enough. It would, um, uh, kind of stay in a vapor, but then when it got up to that ceiling, it would kind of condense and, and then just make liquid and come back down. And that's that's where I really got to see how we make a mistake, um, taking a good structure that was ventilated as it was designed to do, um, and then we add on to it and kind of now it's wider and it doesn't naturally ventilate at all. Yeah, the width is really interesting. Wind is you know, people don't always think of it, but wind is a fluid, same as water. And there's there's resistance to the movement of it, the same as there's friction when water moves across the surface. So as the air moves through it, one, it has to get through a narrower opening, which is just like having a valve in a water line. It just slows down the flow. And then once it goes through there, there's a lot of resistance going across the barn between the animals and the floor and posts and everything that's happening in that barn. And it Realistically, 60 feet is about how far air can travel through a barn. But if I was trying to move air 60 feet across a barn, I wouldn't start with a 12-foot opening. I would start with a much taller opening to be able to get enough air in to move it across a barn. 12-foot um, is sort of our minimum height that we generally would want on a livestock barn anyway, um, both for wind and also just for equipment. It's a sort of a practical number where we don't tend to hit the bottom of a truss. Uh, at least hopefully we don't even with a hay bale up in the air, <laughs> although I've seen it happen. So don't, I won't say never because I've seen it many times, but um, that those are the two reasons that 12 foot is a pretty standard minimum height. Uh, but if you were looking at a 12 foot barn, you wouldn't really probably go much over 40 foot wide as a rule of thumb. 
That's a good that's a good point. And, and that's one of the things that we need to why we need to think about um, consulting engineers before we start doing any construction, because in our minds, we have an idea of what kind of barn size we probably want we don't understand the natural ventilation aspect of it and, and how important that height can be. And um, nobody wants to spend more than they have to on a facility. And so we cut corners and maybe make a, a situation that's, let's just say, not uh, as, as ideal from an animal uh, air quality standpoint as it could be. So if, if you were to think about um, these different structures, then you, you mentioned um, kind of the hoop barn having a little bit different structure component to it in the fact that because they're taller, they would need to have a um, kind of engineered post situation. Would that be true on the gable barn then when we're going up uh, to a little higher? What, what would be the big change of taking that um, up a little higher on maybe the post size and that that we would have to use? Um, it may mean a larger post size. A lot of times it's not going to mean a larger post size. It's actually going to be that you actually have to put proper footers on those posts so they don't have a lot of lift with the wind. Um, the other things that I would say is it would be ideal if everyone put in an engineered gable barn, but I, I am realistic that I know not everyone is going to go that route because there is more cost associated with it. Um, if you aren't using engineered plans, you should at least be getting your engineered trusses for that barn stamped, and they should be stamped for an open-sided barn. What that means is that those trusses are designed to handle the wind loads of an open barn. And the wind load is both um, the horizontal wind that we've been talking about to move air, but there's also a lot of torque on a barn because the side that the air comes into is at like a, it's pressurized, and the other side of the barn is negative pressure. And it almost sort of tries to torque the barn uh, and it puts pressure on those trusses. So you really want to make sure you choose trusses that are engineered, designed to handle being open-sided, so you know that they can handle receiving that type of wind. Um, and then you also want to make sure that you get your posts properly set in the ground so that they don't lift. Um, this is not the same as like a tobacco barn, in the sense that the tobacco barns traditionally have wood siding, which resists the wind. I mean, they're trying to bring wind through, but they're not blowing air straight across that barn. In addition, they're usually hanging tobacco in it. So they have a lot of downward weight um, from materials in the barn where these barns don't have a lot of weight in the structure. So, you know, the trusses should be engineered to handle any snow load or ice load that we might typically get around here. And those are pretty low in this area. So it's not usually a problem to find trusses that, that match that spec, uh, but you do want to make sure that they can handle the wind load. So really thinking about like opening an umbrella outside in a windy day, you're going to have that lift coming in on that barn. Exactly. So as, as you think about um, the barns um, and you mentioned um, the different structures, are there, are there anything, are there, is there anything that we could do for, um, or is there a need for mechanical ventilation in some of these facilities? So, Mechanical ventilation would be us forcing air in or out of the barn. Um, we certainly could consider mechanical ventilation. I lean towards using natural ventilation because we do have enough wind speed around here and the cost to have mechanical ventilation is just an operating, on, operating cost on top of a fairly high capital cost to build the barn. I would prefer that we be good in our estimates on our stocking density when we first choose the size of the barn so that we don't have to use mechanical ventilation because if we have to mechanically ventilate the barn we're adding cost year in and year out um, we'd be better off to make the estimate right to be able to pay off the barn without using that electricity and having to install those fans um, the other thing that we sometimes see in barns which which is not technically ventilation but we see mixing fans in barns or panel fans the dairy industry uses this a lot for heat stress in the summertime or with a bedded pack or a compost bedded pack barn to get moisture out of the barn in the wintertime. Um, and those might be necessary depending on the season, the year, the types of cattle you have in there. Um, ideally, we wouldn't want to have to use any of that. Um, but if we really have a year where, say, bedding costs are really high, then on a year like that, 
it's easier to pay for the electricity to run a fan than to pay for extra bedding because it's a wet year or you just had a heavy rainfall event and it entered the barn. So, so that brings up another good point. Um, you know, you and I were on a, on a, uh, a farm doing a visit in, and the diet can have a um, contributing factor on that as well. Uh, you know, we have a lot more stillage available and it can certainly work into the diet. But um, as we increase the level of stillage that we offer to cattle, there's also a lot more volume of liquid that comes out of the animals, either urine or in the feces. So um, the diet can play a role in that. But, but as, as you mentioned, the bedding, what would be kind of, I mean, are we always going to use kind of dry bedding, like corn stalks and straw, or, or what kind of bedding is typically going to be used? So this is an excellent question. The manure management strategy is probably one of the first decisions you make when you're designing a barn, or it should be. <laughs> I would <laughs> not always the case. Not always the case, but I would strongly encourage someone who's thinking about a barn to spend time on the manure management and their decisions about how much labor they want to put into the manure management early. Um, you have the option to bed your barn, which just means you keep adding bedding as it gets wet. You have the option of a compost bedded pack, which the dairy industry in the state has sort of picked up on and enjoys, but that requires you to till or work up the bedding at least once a day. And in most cases, twice a day, if you have a wetter uh, manure substance, which with stillage, you certainly would have to be working it at least twice a day. Um, also, if you put it on a, like a really hot diet for finishing or, or heavy feeder cattle, you would again have a lot of moisture coming out of the rear end of the animals. And then you have to work that bedding more. It's the reason the dairy typically does two, um, two composting tillages a day. And traditionally, if you had cow calf and you were just feeding hay, you might get away with one tillage cycle in the days because you just have less moisture in the bedding because there's less in the manure. Uh, and the third style of manure management is called a slatted barn. Uh, or some people call it a slotted barn, but that would basically be there's a deep pit under the barn, all the manure falls into it, and your floor is slatted. This is very similar to what the swine industry uses. Um, and the strategy here is that we don't have to try and keep the floor dry uh, by absorbing all the moisture in the manure and urine. And instead, we're just going to put it below those slats, and then we're going to allow the animals some sort of rubber matting or something like that, typically on that concrete floor for them to lay on. Uh, and their foot traffic walks all of that through into the into the pit. So, so here we're dealing with then the decision on handling a liquid manure type product versus a dry kind of more conventional manure type product. So there are regulatory reasons that that folks tend to lean towards dry systems in the state or a solid manure management system in the state. Um, if you have a liquid system, you do have to have some permitting done. Um, so that is a consideration. However, certainly for people that are feeding stillage, the management and the cost of bedding to keep that system dry can be quite high. Um, and so in that case, the cost benefit analysis might lead you towards a, a deep pitted barn rather than a bedded pack or a compost bedded pack barn. Um, the other thing I will say is if you are going to use, a, if you're going to have wetter manure because of the ingredients that you're feeding to the cattle, you should be looking at what materials you can actually use to bed the barn that are, have enough absorption capacity to pick up all of that moisture. Um, realistically, we use dry sawdust for the most part. If, we if we're gonna use anything that's going to work, with those wetter manures, it's gonna be dried sawdust. Not green, but truly kiln dried uh, with a lot of capacity to absorb moisture. Which is probably gonna increase our expenses then. Yes, unless you've got a really nice feet, uh, really nice um, sawmill near you that is looking to get rid of it, but most of them can find a source to get rid of it pretty easily. Um, so yeah, finding a good resource to purchase um, bedding materials and having like a backup plan, one of the things we've seen in the state, the dairy industry, a lot of them went to the compost bedded pack barns and then struggled uh, as they lost um, some of the sawmills and some of their sources um, for that sawdust. They really had to pay two or three times what they were expecting to 
to keep that barn operating. Um, and, you know, they didn't have that in their budget. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, if you have to truck it further or, um, you know, you, you have that uh, mill go down for a short period of time and then you need bedding, then now you're stuck and trying to find where you're going to get the next load from. So let's let's jump over. You, you mentioned stocking rate. We talk a lot about stocking rate when we're thinking about grazing animals, but, um, you know, there's there's certainly this uh, kind of sometimes I would say it's maybe uh, taken from the wrong context. There's a lot of day numbers out there that were used on the dairy side and, and that, but um, it's kind of this square footage per animal um, or, or thinking about how many animals we can put in a barn that's a given size. Are there some good general rules of thumb? And they're probably going to be different for maybe feeder cattle versus finishing cattle versus cow calf. But do you have some general rules of thumb that you usually talk to folks on uh, thinking about this? Yeah. So for bedded pack barns, or at least my approach to designing a bedded pack or a compost bedded pack barn is I want to design a barn. So if they actually are composting it in the summertime, they don't have to add bedding. My goal is to be able to remove all the moisture under ideal conditions, which would be our summer conditions. That's when we can absorb the most moisture um, from that bedding. And then in the wintertime, we end up having to add bedding with some regularity, which makes sense. Um, using that sort of criteria, I often end up with a recommendation of about 120 square foot per cow-calf pair if they go into a barn. Um, and that number is, you know, not perfect, but it, the important thing that you should know is that if you go and look and talk to folks that sell barns out of the upper Midwest, the number they're going to tell you is not 120. Uh, the number they're going to tell you reflects their rainfall totals, uh, their conditions and how much water they can pull from that barn into the air naturally. Um, both they have higher wind speeds and drier conditions, and both of those help them move a little bit more moisture out of their barns. Uh, but, you know, they might tell you you could do it with 80 or 100 square feet. And I'm going to say you you need at least 120 square feet in the bedded pack area. Uh, any concrete feeding areas and things like that are, are additional onto that. You end up probably closer to almost 150 realistically. Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, so you know, you think about the the feeding alley. You, you're you're suggesting 120 square feet in the kind of the bedding laying area for a cow calf pair plus the feeding alley. Mm -hmm. Now that 120 does include some creep area for the calves and some things like that that I would lean towards having um, for a couple reasons. Just for the calves to be able to get away. If you want to creep feed a calf, that's a good thing. Um, but the other reason is um, they can stay drier. You can keep a creep area drier. Uh, and it's more important that those younger calves have a dry area to lay than the cows. The cows have pretty good immunity. Those young calves, you know, if they're sitting in pretty wet material, they, they're far more likely to pick up a disease than the cows. And we're really not talking, I mean, it seems like a big number, right? 120 seems like a big number. But when you break it down in the like cattle panel size, you're talking a 10 foot by 12 foot cattle panel, um, which would be like a maternity pen. Mm -hmm. for, yeah, for you'll notice that the cows, the cows will lay so that it, it'll look like there's lots of open space. Um, but you need those open spaces to be available for the moisture to come out of those areas. So if the cattle had to lay on all the area all the time, then there would never be a chance for that area to dry out. So sometimes it seems like you're wasting space, but what you're actually doing is providing space to drive that moisture off of that pack um, so that you don't have to pay so much for bedding. Good. Yeah, that's a good trade-off, right? It's short-term gain versus long-term gain. Absolutely. So um, what about uh, feeder cattle numbers then? Because um, I, it seems like when you and I have been on some visits and that, and then we've been in meetings, people throw out this 24-square-foot number. And uh, I get back and I think, well, that's back in the dairy heifer, the little dairy heifers kind of numbers. That's that's not a 500 to 800 pound feeder calf kind of number. But what's the target numbers in for 
for that kind of range on a beef system where we're looking at feeder calves from five to maybe 900 pounds? I, I always sort of use like a 55, 60 square foot as sort of my sweet spot. Um, I wish more people would use that number. I was on another farm recently that they were receiving cattle and they, they just didn't have that. I mean, they, they probably had more than 24, but I, I they didn't have more than 30 or 35. And uh, even receiving cattle on the small side in that four or 500 range, they still had a wet floor pretty fast. It wasn't, they just couldn't keep enough bedding down um, in the barn. Just, it was just physically impossible for them to keep it bedded enough to be as dry as I would want it to be. Yep. And it's, you know, I try to tell people, think about, think about the animal from, from kind of nose to tail, how long are they? And then how wide are they? And that's kind of the minimum standing area. And then if you want them to be able to lay down easily and, and get up and move, you know, you, you can't stack them in where there's no place for animals to travel through either. So you've got to have enough room. So if you've got a 700 pound calf that's you know seven feet from nose to tail and and three feet wide well there's 21 square feet plus you might as well say double that to be able to give space to get around that animal on all sides yeah it is it's hard to believe but like you know my recommendation on working facilities is 17 square feet per animal just to be able to sort them um which I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it sounds like a lot and it doesn't at the same time. And when I look at my pens, they sometimes look big, but man, it's hard if you can't get the animals to turn and move so that you can move one out that you need to and move the other one in a different direction. If they all go together at once or not at all, then there's not enough space. Uh, and certainly in a barn, you don't want them all to work as a group like that. Because as I said before, if, if they're all together, then there's nowhere for the moisture to come out of that pack. And then it just ends up being very wet. Yep, that's that's a good point. You know, sometimes we don't think about that that um, that that pack needs an opportunity to kind of fluff up and let that moisture get out, and otherwise we're going to be at bedding every other day or maybe even every day because it's just going to stay wet all the time. Yeah. So I, the other thing I want to just mention is when you have a wet pack, what you essentially are doing is putting the cattle back into mud. So, you know, the reason we move them out of mud is because we can gain efficiencies 15 to 25 percent, depending on how much mud and how deep it is. The last thing we want to do is make the pack wet enough that they sink into it like they do in mud and they work to get through it like they do in mud. Because if we're making them inefficient in a barn at the same level they were inefficient in the mud, then we haven't really provided any benefits for the cattle. We might have made it easier for us to feed, but our goal should be also to get better gains on the cattle at the same time, because that's where we're going to pay for the barn. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, are there, are there any structure considerations uh, to think about, for example, um, um, wood versus metal um, um, insulation for the roof line versus not some of those types of things to think about? That's a good question. So I would say that we saw a real pickup in metal barns um, maybe 10 years ago in the upper Midwest, and they've moved back to wood to a greater extent, um, mainly because the wood handles moisture loads a little bit better than the metal. Um, the key is a wood barn really can't be wider than 60 foot, but since I already told you I don't like barns wider than 60 foot, I'm okay with that. That means our trusses if we can keep our trusses in that 42-ish feet range, cost-wise, they seem to be, or they, at least before price inflation, right, they, seem exactly. years, they seem to be pretty reasonable um, and usually a little bit less expensive than a metal structure. For the monoslopes, we almost always see a metal structure, and that's just because of the sheer length um, between um, posts on those barns. Um, and how much load there is on that monoslope with that wind coming in. There's a lot of pressure on that on that structure. It tends to be a metal barn. But for gable barns, a lot of times we can use wood for our vertical posts and our trusses. Uh, and then we just put metal on the roof because it's a more durable structure, obviously, on that roof um, line. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that even on a truss barn that can handle a little bit more moisture load than metal, which tends to rust, 
um, that truss still has metal plates in it. So we don't want to leave a barn so wet that it rains down on us. Like your example, if we're seeing that kind of water in the barn, then we have to work on our ventilation because that type of moisture load is going to deteriorate both the metal barn and the wood barn. Um, and the other rust question, or rot, rust or rot. That's what you got to deal with, right? <laughs> uh, being smart about your concrete too is also really important because with the manure in that barn, if we do good pours on our concrete, we can take our wood out of the manure and that will also preserve the structure um, long-term. So getting good concrete pours for both uh, footers, but also we can usually run at least some sort of piling up on those, or we can actually run some knee walls on the sides of the barn and actually attach our posts to those. Um, either either metal or wood, both of them do better if the concrete actually handles the manure and not those materials. So, so would you recommend insulation on, on the inside of the roof on those metal um, barns or not? I probably wouldn't invest in insulation for a couple reasons. One, um, if you have birds get in there, it's a mess. Um, two, um, the roof line is pretty high. So for us, we have a lot of heat load in the summer. And while we have some cold in the winter, it's not cold enough to really stress cattle typically around here if they're not wet. And if they're in a barn and we keep the bedding dry, they're not wet. So Typically, I wouldn't invest in insulation. They do make what they call a drip stop material, which is basically a very thin film coating that they can put on the metal on the roof. And that will keep any condensation from dripping back down. And what it essentially does is it allows us in that early morning time when we get some of that condensation at that coldest point of the day, it, that water condenses into that drip stop. And then over the next two hours, it evaporates out as the temperature starts to rise as the sun hits the roof. And that's not a bad material just it keeps some of that dripping from happening um, and it also doesn't seem to have any real issues with birds or other things they can't tear it up in the same way that they can with some of the other insulations so that's probably where i would tend to lean in this climate yep i, I think that's that's true we i've seen some facilities that have put in insulation on the roof line only to in a few years see the birds kind of rip it all out and that it, it was kind of an expensive investment that didn't stick around long. But um, one of the things that I think people tend to like the idea of the hoop and the monoslope barn is that there's no center post and that they've got to worry about when they're bedding or cleaning the barn out or even moving cattle around. Um, is, is there kind of a, for a gable structure, is there a kind of a maximum width that we could go and still have that open underneath? Yeah, I mean, I think that 60 foot is sort of that, that's about as wide as you'd want to be. Um, I have seen some people, though, be pretty strategic about how they pour their posts on the side where their feed troughs are so that they can sort of stretch out the amount of barn that they have, but still keep that trough sort of protected in that feed trough area. And that I think there is always ways to be a little bit more creative uh, when doing some of these things, but um, I, realistically, a 60 foot would be sort of where your width would end up. I've also seen people do 60 foot and then put a shed on one side. And if you have enough height on the barn, you can do that as well. But then you have to figure out how you're using that shed. Most people, if they have that shed, it's either for hay storage or equipment storage um, or they're using that shed as um, like a back alley to push cattle back to a working facility. So they're not necessarily cleaning it out and running equipment through it where they would catch those posts very often. Um, but they have that space available for a couple specific needs or even like a cow-calf operation, they might use that area for um, for pens when they calve. Because um, some people like to have calving pens when they have calves and cows in a barn um, so that they can have them isolated for about 24 to 48 hours before they come back into the group. So within a barn, um, we, we kind of hinted around this, but um, true feeding, true separate feeding alley or just leave it open and they can come up to feed and go back has, has however often and whichever direction they want or, you know, kind of having a, a fence line within the barn that physically separates the feeding alley versus the bedding slash laying area. 
Yeah, certainly if you have bedding, you're going to want some form of control over where they go in and out of it. Um, anywhere they walk from the concrete area into the bedding, they're going to pull manure back with them. So there's very wet areas right where they enter the bedded pack or compost bedded pack. If you're not doing that, if you have a slatted floor, it's a little bit more of personal preference. But the other thing I'll say is some people, the way they like to feed, they like all animals to hit a bunk at once. And if that's your goal, then you absolutely need that gate system there so that you can open and close the gates and control the flow of those cattle if you have ad libitum hay access, you may not be as inclined uh, to worry about that. But so there's a little bit of a personal decision based upon the type of feeding you're doing and the type of management of the laying area as to how important that gate system is. But generally, I would include that gate system unless there was some reason someone was strongly opposed to it and could justify it. And it, it may be too dependent on what kind of animals we're dealing with, because you can with feeder cattle, you know, you can certainly use that feeding alley as a way to, to sort animals that need to be treated in that um, uh, versus taking them outside of the facility to sort. Um, but, you know, if you're thinking maybe about cow-calf and just going through the winter with gestating dry cows with no calves because they're spring calvers, and maybe you don't need that um, separation. But in, in most cases, I think what what we've seen is having a designated feeding alley certainly helps us keep the bedded area drier. Absolutely. Well, this has been great discussion and um, I think we've hit on a lot of good topics here. Um, any kind of last things that you would like to share for folks that might be considering thinking about building a, a barn to manage cattle in confinement, either, either just partially through the winter or even using that facility year round? Um, maybe one, one warning or consideration for people is the one question I get a lot is I'm going to use it for my cows in the winter time or my cow calf pairs in the winter time. I'm going to bring in feeders from the stockyards in the summer to fill the barn uh, to get some gain on some additional animals that will help me pay off my barn. Um, and I just remind people that, you know, when you go to the stockyard and pick up feeders, what sort of disease you fight if you are going to do that and then turn around and bring your cows in and have them calve in the barn two weeks or a month after you move those feeders out, there is very, it's difficult to get that disease out of that barn entirely uh, in that amount of time, even if you clean out that barn. Um, so there are some real high risks um, for those younger calves. And, you know, if you've worked hard on your cow herd and that's, it's your pride, you certainly wouldn't want to be calving your calves uh, into an environment where you think there's that kind of risk for disease. Um, be more strategic about it. You know, if you and have so many cows and you're going to keep your own calves in the barn over the summer, that's much lower risk. Or if you're going to keep your own calves and your father's calves or your brother's calves, and you know that they have the same vaccination program and management as you, that's a much more practical way to fill a barn in the summertime with calves. Um, so I just, I encourage you to really think about how you're going to keep that barn filled and if you're comfortable with the level of disease that those calves could be bringing into the barn. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you, know, you and I probably have seen that being in kind of again in the upper Midwest where there is more winter confinement. And uh, if you get something like crypto in, in that barn, it, there's really no way of getting it out. Um, it, and same thing with coccidiosis. It can be really challenging to, to knock that out. And we know it's naturally there, um, but, you know, you're just going to introduce that to those younger, lighter calves earlier when their immune systems may not be able to handle it. Good, good discussion on that. And it's, I guess it's, um, it's one thing we didn't really touch on that I almost forgot about was, do you have any thoughts or ideas on waters and, and maybe where they should be put? Yeah, you definitely want a good water. I, you know, I remind people all the time that the last thing you want to do is put cattle in a barn to try and get better gains on them and then not give them enough water to be able to eat the feed that you're putting in front of them. Um, and even with stillage and some of those materials that are really wet, it doesn't mean that they're not still going to drink water. So you still need to have a good source of water in the barn um, and enough flow rate on that water that it doesn't run dry a lot of the time, especially because if they hit the bunk together, they all go to the water together as well. That tends to be 
very hard turnaround on both of those so that you really do need good flow rates. That water tank should be in the concrete area in your feed alley because all that water that gets wasted, you want to be able to scrape it with the wetter manure uh, and not have that in your bedded pack area. Um, if you have a slatted floor barn, you have a lot more flexibility in where you put that water tank. Um, but generally, I like it there because you can offset some of your concrete there and actually keep it protected as you scrape so that you won't end up hitting that tank. Because that's the other thing I do see people do is they do catch that tank occasionally with a skid steer or whatever implement they're using to scrape a barn. Yeah, and I've, I've seen some that have tried to put them in the middle. And, um, you know, as, as that bedding gets added and added and added before long, the, the drink cups are at the feet of the animal instead of being up where they need to be. And so all this bedding then just keeps getting drug in and drug in, or it looks like a, uh, kind of a, uh, a valley and hills where the bedding's really high on the outsides of the barns and they've tried to keep pulling it away from the water. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good good kind of take home point is to think about that water placement um outside of barns i've seen folks do that too and and that's that's i guess okay in my mind but you, you're not getting that water any protection from the elements if we get really cold um whereas if it's inside that barn maybe it doesn't freeze as much yeah i think that's a good point and the other thing i would encourage people is you know, we're talking about total confinement today, but that doesn't mean you have to have a total confinement. There are, there are lots of options that include open lot and some loafing barn or pasture and a loafing barn. And, you know, that doesn't, just because we're talking about total confinement doesn't mean that the feeding and the loafing and the water and all of that has to be in one spot. That is not a, it's not an all or nothing option. There are other options out there uh, and other strategies that people use, and that's okay too. Great point. Yeah, we forget about that. And, um, you know, sometimes a, even a, a, a good old pole structure um, with a, a, you know, where cattle can come in and go as they please. It's just what they need at certain points in time. Any other last closing thoughts that you want to share on considerations on confinement? Uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, I mean, it is. It's, it's a challenge to move to confinement. The I won't say that there's more work involved in confinement, but it's really important if you're moving to a confinement operation that you, you be detail oriented, that you really be diligent and keep an eye on everything. Because if things go sideways or south, it's very fast, typically, um, and you really want to be on top of it and recognize what's happening early. So um, make sure that you're ready for that type of management style if you're moving to a barn. Preventative health care protocols have to be top-notch and, and they have to be followed. That's a good point. Um, I think we also have to realize that there are some challenges with, for example, first calf heifers don't produce as much colostrum and antibodies in their colostrum. And so we may see a little bit more scouring in that in some of those first calf heifers. Um, but, but that's a really good point is be diligent and you, you've got to spend time checking them and making sure you catch them early. Absolutely. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, um, the, the kind of last uh, maybe thing I would share is um, do your homework, right? And, and put a pencil to this and try to get some realistic expectation on costs and things like water. Maybe you've always used the creeks and the ponds and you're going to city water maybe you're putting fans and lights in and haven't thought about the electric bill that comes along with that. Are there, are there some good resources out there that folks might think about looking at when considering There's some the interesting calculators um, out there. Um, and certainly our economics folks can help with some calculations as well. Um, the key is to make sure that you have the things that I think people don't have good cost assessments on is bedding. Um, they have an incorrect stocking density in mind. And then if they have to lower it, um, they end up in big trouble because they can't pay off their barn if they don't have that number of calves coming out of it every turn or every calving cycle. Um, so there, there are strategies, but you, the thing you don't want to do is overestimate your capacity in the barn, um, or underestimate your operating cost in the barn. So like you said, the water, the electricity, 
the running of maybe multiple tractors every day to feed, um, having to have multiple tractors hooked up to implements all the time. Um, some of these things that they don't necessarily come in the first line of thinking, and but they are really important to get into your cost analysis before you pull the trigger. Yep. And, and to make a full circle back around, uh, we talked about bedding and manure management. Just because you built a building on a small piece of ground, you've got to have the acreage to take the manure to, to dispose of it. Yeah. And right now with fertilizer prices, if you, if you do have land, there's some real value in that manure. Um, this is not like, uh, the swine industry has used, integrators have used that as a selling point for years on swine manure. Uh, we don't, we're not selling you on a cattle barn based upon the value of the manure, but if you have a land base to take it, there is value in it. If you don't have a land base to take it, it is a liability. Um, so you want to make sure that you have a nutrient management plan, a way to spread that and a way to keep records on it because you are producing quite a bit of manure and putting it out at one time and you want to be cognizant of how you do that. Yep. Well, Dr. Hayes, I want to thank you for joining us. I think this has been a great discussion and covering a lot of things to consider when maybe moving to confinement management of beef cattle and, and any livestock species, to be honest. We need to think about all these things. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us. And um, any last comment before we go? No, thanks for having me. Any, yeah, anytime. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure to have you back and uh, thinking about that uh, working facility. That That's another good topic because you brought up one that we often forget about is that holding pen size. So that'll be a good yeah. discussion. Yeah, the holding pen's the bane of my existence. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, I was joined today by my colleague, Dr. Morgan Hayes, and um, uh, we were chit-chatting about confinement beef facilities. And uh, if you haven't already done so, please uh, subscribe to the Beef Fits Podcast and get uh, this episode as well as uh, past episodes and upcoming ones. Send us any feedback, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you in the future. Thanks, Dr. Hayes. Thank you.